So, as we move now uh, from teaching into conversation, I think it's so important to begin just by saying, you have no idea what part of Brooklyn I'm from. <laughs> <laughs> the glass is still up in my neighborhood. Baby. <laughs> I'm just kidding. We had below average coffee occasionally, and that was as bad as it got. <laughs> Thank you so much, Rich. Uh, it, it's a hard thing to step into a community and to speak with honesty and to speak about uh, difficult topics which will land with varying levels of comfort and resonance and reaction um, and to do so honestly and boldly and unapologetically but also to do so full of love and hope uh, for the church and her role in the world. So thank you, man. Yeah. What a gift. Um, this is kind of how I want to frame our conversation. You named six layers that we have to talk about yeah. uh, gospel, race, and reconciliation through. I want to focus in on three of those layers, okay. in particular, the theological, the formational, and the ecclesial, okay. in that order. So uh, I'd love to start with the theological. So you you said something really punchy that stuck with me when you talked about uh, a Korean-American gentleman that you were having a conversation with at New Life, um, and, and you said a phrase that was something like the way that he was seeing individuals is, was inconsistent with the way that Jesus sees them. Yeah. And so I'm just wondering, can you connect the dots for us to the biblical story? Yeah. And so where in Scripture are we seeing racism at play and the way that God addresses it? You know, when I think about, back to the definition of racism, racism, as we understand it today, is not a biblical category. And so, as we, with some of those definitions that I gave you, the way that we see racism at work in our culture um, is not a category that you're gonna necessarily see reflective in scripture in a one-on-one, one-to-one way. However, what we do find in the scriptures are times when certain groups of people might be seen as less than and having a society that's oriented around offering advantages to some and disadvantages to others. And so whether we're talking about, let's just look at it broad in our perspective a little bit. Let's look at how, when you look at Jesus and like lepers, for example, a classification of people that were seen as less than, a classification of people that were seen as inferior, as a danger to the well-being of the community. And the ways that that was not just the boundary of them, the boundary of them was not just seen in uh, physical or public health perspectives, but it was also seen in terms of their own humanity. And so I think we see over and over in Scripture um, those who are seen as less than. Alongside of that, what we see also is just kind of a mutuality of hostility. And so from Genesis to Revelation, the overarching kind of way that I see Scripture and theology is that God is looking to create a new family. And we see that 
from the very beginning when he calls Abraham. He's like, I, 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 you're going to be a blessing to the nations. And all nations are going to be blessed through you. And, and what we see even in the Old Testament prophets is this call for a day that's going to come when the dividing wall of hostility and the hierarchies that are created are going to now disappear. We see Jesus entering into that story and, and the people he touches and the people he's related to and connected to. Uh, and so very broadly, I, we're not going to find the classifications of racism the way that we understand it in our world. But I think the question is, to what degree was power being used to, whether it was subjugate, um, belittle, see as inferior other people. And, um, and, this is, and this is why we have to do the work of discernment as we're in scripture. Because what folks would say to that is, oh, because there's, we shouldn't then look to the Bible because there's no classification of racism. But the Bible's not a textbook. The Bible's not an encyclopedia that has neatly outlined topical things here where we go, oh, what did the Bible say about that? But I think we have to now do the hard work, and this is why we need the gift of scholars and theologians to help us go, yeah, these are the points of, um, of overlap and points of, um, of, of connection to understand just our, cur- our cultural moment and just what it means to be human in this world. And so I'll start with that. Derek. Yeah, and even as you name... Uh, there's connection points firing in my mind, such as John the Baptist and his instruction to various groups of people about how to recognize the Messiah. Yeah. He has instructions for Roman soldiers, which are, is about the stewardship of power. He has mm-hmm. uh, instructions for those who have plenty or those who have more than they need for the proper stewardship of their material goods, so on and so forth. And then, of course, Jesus addresses the way that Uh, divisions between people have crept into the temple when he's turning over the tables, um, which was marginalizing certain groups that were deemed dangerous or further from God than others, and Jesus reordering the temple calls it a house of prayer. I think it was also interesting you spoke briefly about principalities and powers. I've read your latest book. I I know the bit you're referring to. I think that's an important part of this conversation, that it is rarely referenced, but is a part of the biblical imagination in a way that is different than the common Western church imagination today. So I just want to return to that and maybe just press you a little bit further. So could you define, again, principalities and powers the way that you did as you taught, just to take us back there? Yeah, principalities and powers, the way that I think about it is it's, it's evil spiritual forces that take root in individuals, ideologies, and institutions with three goals in mind, depersonalization, deception, and division. Now, when I talk about depersonalization, what I mean by that is powers and principalities would love for us not to see people, but swaths of just stuff out there, which is when you look at our world today, like it's the Democrats, it's the Republicans. That's the work of powers and principalities. It's the gay people. It's those people. So no longer are we seeing image bearers. No longer are we seeing individuals and persons. We're seeing masses of people. 
And whenever we live in our world seeing masses of people, we're playing right into the powers and principalities' hands. Which is why I love Jesus in the scriptures because Jesus is consistently has a message for everyone here, but he's so personal. He's reaching out to people in their own story. He's not not dealing with one person in the way he deals with another. He recognizes their uniqueness, their unique journey. Powers and principalities, we just want a classification. And let's classify accordingly so I can know who to reject, who to disregard, who to demonize. And when you look at social media, look at the media. The media right now is a power and principality. Social media is a power and principality. I mean, you ever, you ever just, I mean, you watch cable news. I mean, I talk at our church, I talk about be mindful of cable news discipleship. <laughs> because I watch cable news, I'm like, I'm so angry. I'm just like, it's, it's those group of people. And I'm just like, wow, I, I really just got played here. <laughs> and so um, that's how I've tried to think about the larger spiritual forces, which for, um, a Western mindset, for an American mindset, this is why we need the help of Pentecostals um, in, some fa- in some way here who can help us go, oh yeah, there's something else at work here in this world. Um, and this is why we need people beyond just Pentecostal. I mean, my, my, my Pentecostal tradition and my, I mean, we can go a little overboard as well. Um, and, you know, there's a demon behind every bush as well. And, and so, and then we tend to not see the larger ways that, structures and institutions are shaped by it. And so we just focus on demons and individuals as opposed to the larger ways. And which just reminds me, like whenever someone says, you know, I don't know about the larger structural racism, my friend Albert Tate, he says it this way. He's like, imagine Satan is like with his minions and they're about to talk about, you know, how we're going to oppress the world with our demons and all right, let, let's, let's get in that, you know, let's, pornography, great. Uh, and, and greed, great. And, and this, great. Racism, don't touch racism. Uh, let's, let's, let's not touch that there. Let, leave that alone. Could you imagine them doing that? It's like, no, he's going to say, let's go into that as well. And so I think we need larger categories to help us understand the nature of our estrangement that is more than just we see the world differently there's something else at work. And I'll just say one more thing about this, Tyler. In my book, I, 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 write, I talk about, I, I created this fictional scenario of a woman in um, the mid-1900s who, or early 1900s who is a church-going woman from Texas, uh, apple pie-making mom and Bible study-going and uh, never uttered a curse word in her life, doesn't gossip. She gathers people in her home to pray, to study the scriptures. It's, it's, it's beautiful. And then um, one day, she decides to have a family trip uh, to go into the city because the city was going to gather to witness and be a part of a lynching. And she was going to take a picture and send it on a postcard with the lynched body behind her which is a practice that was done. And the question, when I think about that in some ways fictional story, I go, 
how could a nice, sweet, church-going, Bible-reading, generous woman find herself in a space like that? Well, it's because there's another power at work in our society. And, um, and we see the ramifications, you know, we see that happening in many different ways as well. So I think we need a new category or an additional category to think about the massive nature of a situation or a problem like this. Yeah, I think in the biblical imagination, we see this belief and maybe a sober-mindedness toward an animating spiritual force of evil yeah. behind the destruction that sin is wreaking in our world. And there's examples from this everywhere, but one would be, you know, Jesus saying, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven when he's getting the report back from either the 12 or the 72, I can't recall, when they return, which is an Old Testament reference to Babylon. Mm. And so like Jesus so often when he's teaching, the question is then, is Jesus talking about a political kingdom that oppressed Israel in a former generation, or is he talking about an actual mm. intelligent demonic being named Satan? And the answer is, of course, yes. Jesus is constantly doing this, referring to both at the same time, because there is a belief that the evil in this world is being carried out yeah. intelligently by being that is working toward human destruction yeah. just as the Spirit of God is working for human redemption. And I personally, as a pastor, see that far more in the biblical imagination than I do in the modern church imagination. And my reflection would be that that allows for greater division. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it allows for the flourishing of the work of principalities and powers because if there is no uh, intelligent being working for destruction and division, then there's only people. Yeah. People who are destroying yeah. and dividing. People who are then made into the enemy. And I just wonder, uh, in your pastoral context and experience, if, if you see a similarity in that or, or different nuances? I'm, I'm just curious about that theological theme in your experience. Yeah, I think you said it well. I don't know if I can add much to that, um, except that when I look at, there comes a point when we look at the world and we go, at least I ask myself this question, um, for X, Y, Z to happen, for that to happen, there must be something else at work in the world that is happening here. There's just some stuff that just uh, transcends our ability to understand and absorb the nature of evil in our world. And sometimes I just have to come to the conclusion um, there is something behind the scenes that's animating what we see here. And I think we just need a growing capacity to wrestle with that. But I think you said it really well, Tyler. So... Now let's move into the formational layer because we are a people of practice around here. Um, we're a people that take our formation into God's image very seriously. And we're a people that believe that we can uh, make more space for the Spirit of God yeah. through the way that we practice the way of Jesus in our lives. So you gave us a number of really helpful practices, but you used a term, which I think is so key and rarely connected to this conversation 
early in your teaching, self-differentiation. Yeah. So I wonder, could you define self-differentiation for us? Yeah. Uh, maybe offer a way that that intersects with the theme of reconciliation and yeah. then a practice or two to grow in self-differentiation. Yeah, so again, self-differentiation, there's a few ways to think about it. This comes out of family systems theory. And so one way of thinking about it is it's uh, becoming an I while remaining close to others. Another way of saying it is it's, um, it's living in such a way where your actions are not determined by somebody's actions or behavior. Another way of saying it is, using the language I use, it's remaining close and curious to God, close and curious to myself, and close and curious to others. And so it is that toggle of, I'm called to resist enmeshment, and I'm called to resist cutoff. To be differentiated is to stand with you here and say I'm an individual and I am, I want to do the best I can to remain connected. Um, now, in a culture that can prize individualism, like the United States, it's very easy to think about differentiation and to go, I'm an I, leave me alone. I'm going to make my own decisions. And then in other kind of more collectivist cultures, the emphasis is on the collective. Um, familia, it's, it's family, it's it's. What matters is who I'm connected to, the community I belong to, and there's just this toggle. But differentiation is not simply about recognizing the ways that we are individuals and called to community. Differentiation is what family systems theorists would say, it's about living beyond reactivity and emotionality. And again, anxiety, it's paying attention to anxiety and what it does to us. Anxiety is... Again, not, anxiety is not simply about like excessive worry. Anxiety is an automatic response to a real or perceived threat. That's what anxiety is, or one way of thinking of it. And so you don't have to have excessive worry to be an anxious person. Your anxiety can manifest through manipulation, through anger, through avoidance. And a practice that I, I talked about earlier today to a group of pastors, um, okay, a practice well, of growing in... Let me pause you one yeah. second before you go into the practice. Yeah. I want to get there, but I want to make sure we can all kind of connect the dots to yeah. the practical outworking of self-differentiation in our lives. I think this is important. So could you give a practical example <clears throat> of maybe healthy self-differentiation and then reactivity for normal anxiety that has nothing to do with, uh, you know, ethnic division. Yeah. Just, you, you told a story Sunday about getting an email <laughs> that produced anxiety in you at 10.30 p.m. Yes. So w what is an anxious response or a reactive response to that, and what is healthy self-differentiation in that moment? An anxious response is... Uh, I never saw the email, um, uh, I'm going to delete the email, uh, I'm going to avoid the person for as much as I can, I'm going to fire her, uh, just, uh, uh, you know, I mean, that's anxiety at work here now. And you'd be surprised how that happens in churches. Um, it's it's our, my, my inability now to declare myself, an inability to name my own values, and so 
a healthy response to that is to say, hey, um, these are my concerns. This is what I think about that. But I'm willing to explore a possible way forward here. Um, or someone, let's just say, disagrees with me on something. And I just say, this is the reason why I don't want to go in this direction because it violates a value of mine. And so because this value is violated, I can't align with you here. But at the same time, I'm not going to cut off from you. I'm going to do as best as I can to remain emotionally connected to the best of my ability. That's good differentiation. That I don't have to necessarily align with you on everything, and yet I want to remain emotionally close to you. Our culture doesn't operate that way. Our culture is very on the, it's on the low spectrum of differentiation. It's if we do not have total alignment with everything, I'm cutting you off. Churches, why are there so many church splits? Because churches are filled with people who are on the low end of differentiation, who do not know how to live within the tension of individuality and community. And so... Um, so so yeah. we can see what an essential practice, like what, what an essential way that we must mature to live Jesus' vision of his new family, yeah. Jesus' vision of the church. And every last one of us can relate to I was going about my life and things were going reasonably well. There's been an interruption to my equilibrium producing anxiety within me. Yep. And depending on personality type, we all have reactive patterns then, whether it is to manipulate the situation, cut the person off, uh, become paralyzed. You know, we all react to anxiety in different ways. So we all would love to grow in healthy self-differentiation. Yeah. How do you begin that journey? Yeah, I think uh, one start to that journey is to recognize that our reactions contain within them lots of revelation. And... Um, there's a reaction inventory that I created and I talk about in the Deeply Formed Life. Uh, I found myself in 2017, 2018 uh, anxious about lots of different things. I found myself very fragile, fragile to criticism, fragile and defensive whenever someone would disagree with me about something. I just found myself on edge and carrying this kind of soul fragility. And so I was like, I, I don't want to live this way reactive, avoiding, resentful, not stating my perspective on a matter. And so I decided to um, create kind of a reaction inventory to help me wade through the disproportionate reactions in me whenever something happened. And so I set up um, I, I, five questions. So I, I, five questions, and I'll name them in a minute. And for the month of November, I remember it was the month of November, I said, every time that I feel a disproportionate reaction to something that someone said, an email I received, a, a critique, a criticism, I'm going to ask myself these five questions in a prayerful manner, journaling before God. You know, I was expecting to maybe do this once a week. Uh, <laughs> it was like every other day that I was doing this. And so I probably had about... 13 to 14 journal entries around this in the span of one month. And so here are the five questions that I asked myself, and I, I commend them to you. What happened? What am I feeling? 
What's the story I'm telling myself? What's the gospel say? What's the counter instinctual action that's required of me? And so I did that 13, 14 times for a month. And a couple of things started happening. Number one, I think I started getting some healing from the spirit. Two, I started observing myself a little bit more. I was, I, was, I, was, I was standing outside of myself for a little bit to gain some perspective. And I remember it happened with one particular incident out of those 13, 14, one in particular comes to mind where I had posted something on Instagram, a resource, a prayer resource, and a really well-known Christian leader in our nation sent me a DM with a little critique. She was really trying to help me strengthen this thing. And Rich, I think you should consider doing this with it. It was a wonderfully crafted direct message to me. And I read it and my initial response was, who the hell do you think you are? (laughs) Kind of closed the laptop and was just like angry. And so I had been doing this. About seven minutes later, I realized, oh, that was a disproportionate response there. <laughs> Lord, what are, you, what are you doing in me? So I took up my journal and what happened? You know, a well-known leader I really respect had a word of critique for me. What am I feeling? Shame. Deep shame. What's the story I'm telling myself? I'll never be the kind of pastor, the kind of leader, the kind of writer, the kind of human that I really want to be. I have too many gaps in my life. What's the gospel say? Jesus only works with people who have gaps in their lives. What's the counter-instinctual act that's required of me? And this is what I've discovered as I've led this exercise with people in our church and around the country. The counter-instinctual act is usually having space to externalize what's inside of me. Uh, I know what it's like to feel that and then go into a hole and wallow in my shame, wallow in secrecy. And then I get deep in my hole and then with the help of God or just through distraction, I kind of come out of the hole and I go on my business. And I remember doing this. I I realized the counter instinctual act for me was to invite someone in, especially my wife, Rosie, and a group of pastors that I meet with on a regular basis. And I remember the first one when this happened, I felt the shame and I said, I need to talk to Rosie. And so I said, honey, I remember where I was sitting in the living room. I said, can I chat with you for a second? Uh, Something happened and I'm feeling lots of shame today. And I need a couple of things. I I need your embrace right now. Um, I need a space for me just to process with you. And she was first of all so grateful that I was letting her in. Um, Something I had a hard time doing. And it bonded us in some really wonderful ways. And this is what I understood through that process. It's not that I don't go into the hole anymore. I still go into the hole. 
but I don't go in as deep and I don't stay there as long. To be human, you're going to go in the hole. You're going to get anxious. You're going you're to feel shame. You're going to feel some stuff. But there's a way of not living there. And so those five questions, what, what, how, that's, how has that helped me? I'm no longer trying to, I'm, I'm no longer now, no longer is not the right word, but I am less inclined to now be driven by reactivity. Like, to be a calm presence differentiation, it's not about being an emotional robot. It's about not being driven by emotional reactivity. And as we give ourselves to these practices, we are now more present to God, present to ourselves, and have the greater capacity to be present to others. Yeah, and that, that's so essential for becoming a reconciled and reconciling community, right? I'm thinking of JT, who's sitting right over here, and Civil Righteousness, the organization JT runs when he's not here in Portland, uh, one week a month serving our church, uh, are experts in hosting table conversations around racial and ethnic division. And the exact process you're talking about walking through is essential for the church to become a model of reconciliation, right? Because mm. if we're to have these conversations, anxiety will rise within different people. We will feel different things. We will react, we will grow defensive, we will grow proud, or we will run, we will enmesh, you know, we will, come, yeah. we will do all of these things unless we're willing to engage this inner journey of a practice of self-differentiation. And what I love, and what I think that we can hear as Bridgetown Church is, is that those five questions what they do is they lead you into prayer, Yeah. right? It is you are driven into prayer because so often we have conversations like this and, pe and, and people either leave angry or paralyzed, mm -hmm. right? Either I'm angry because I've grown defensive or I'm angry because of the effects of this that I'm feeling, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. and, and that still haven't changed. Or I'm paralyzed because of guilt or shame and, and have no idea what to do. Uh, neither of those emotions are places that Jesus wants to leave us. Yeah. And so yeah. we have to bring those things to him in prayer. Yeah. Which, so, is, which is why yeah. a good question for us, and we use this all the time in Queens, is what does my reaction tell me about me? I know what my reaction tells me about you, all right? Um, <laughs> but I think we're growing into spiritual maturity when we're asking that question, you know, in your small groups, when someone says something and you're triggered in a certain way, you know, what if we begin to ask, what does my reaction tell me about me? And let's start there, as opposed to, why did God put me in this small group here? And, and, uh, <laughs> which I know never happens in this church here, but um, amen. One last question, and, and this one will close here on the ecclesial level, meaning talking about the church, not just me as an individual, but us here as Bridgetown Church. Uh, you got to Portland something like 12.30 a.m. Sunday morning, mm -hmm. and then showed up here to preach, had a full day, and then you and I sat down to dinner Sunday night after a very full day, and the first thing you said to me was, Hector says hi. And Hector is, he's Dominican? 
uh, Puerto Rican. He's Puerto Rican. So Hector is an older Puerto Rican man, probably two generations older than me, mm-hmm. who was my table leader at the Emotionally Healthy Relationships course that my wife and I did at your church mm-hmm. years ago. And Hector got to know my story, entered into my family, occasionally emailed me prayers after that, mm-hmm. but we had that connection years ago and bound himself to me. And as you said, Hector says hi, I was kind of right back in that room in my imagination. And I remember sitting there at New Life Fellowship and looking around and not beholding the aesthetic of diversity, but watching as people of very different backgrounds, very different generations, very different socioeconomic classes were doing deep work together, Mm. talking about our genograms and our family of origins, talking about the way we react to conflict, talking about the ways we've been shaped and the ways that we're going on being shaped. And I remember leaving that course and saying to Kirsten, that is the most truly reconciling group of people that I've ever gotten to be a part of. And so I think my question is, how did that happen? And I want to acknowledge that you've referenced a number of times that I, you know, sociologists call the Queensboro of New York City the most diverse place on the globe. Portland, Oregon is not the most diverse place on the globe. <laughs> so there, there, are certain, there, there are certain ways that context influences a people. Yeah. We live in a city that is more, much more defined by a majority culture than the city that you live in. And yet you've also gotten to walk on a journey with the church mm-hmm. over a long period of time. And I just wonder if we might pick up a few breadcrumbs from your stories. You name, yeah, I think these are the major building blocks of how we got to be like that room you sat in. Yeah, yeah, in many ways, much of this, uh, the credit goes to my predecessor. I feel like um, Pete, plant, Pete led our church for 26 years. I've been leading it for a decade now. And first and foremost, I think he had a radical approach to understanding the gospel and the primary fruit of it, what I've already alluded to today, as new family. Um, to have that kind of language of new family, I think is really important in navigating a conversation like this. Because if we are new family, you know, when we get baptized, we're not just baptized into Christ Jesus, we're baptized into the family of God. We have a new identity. We have new brothers and sisters. There's a new family here. And I think, you know, I have plenty of conflicts with my family, my extended family, and we're family. I can, I've, we've normalized the complexity of this here. And so that's a big driving part of are we functioning as family and normalizing the complexity of that in this particular context. I also think we've, we, we've worked really hard along the lines of what I've talked about today on being incarnational. And by incarnational, I, I really mean entering into the world of someone else and learning, being curious, 
um, understanding the nuances. You know, when I got to New York, my, my biggest area of growth as a Puerto Rican New Yorker, I grew up around lots of, you know, Puerto Ricans, Dominicans, African Americans who came up from South Carolina, North Carolina, and came up north. And my greatest area of growth in my last 15 years has been with our Asian and Asian American sisters and brothers. That's, for me, that's been my biggest. I remember understanding the nuances of people. Uh, talking, I remember preaching a sermon and I said exactly that. My, I've been growing so much in my understanding of Asian and Asian American people. And then Pete came up to me and said, now Rich, we had three services at the time. So he'd say, we always process after the first service. Next service you say that, which I just thank God for multiple services to get it right. He, he was once visiting my church and did this with me between services. <laughs> and I was like, who are you, bro? <laughs> I didn't ask for this. Yeah. Which is my first response when he said, um, hey, Rich, do you know what you can do? And I said, do you know what you can do? Uh, and, <laughs> you know, 29 years old and def- hyper defensive and all that. But he said, the next time you say, just recognize the complexity of this. To talk about Asian and Asian Americans, we have people from China and Japan and Korea and Singapore, Malaysia and Bhutan and India and Sri Lanka and go down the road here to understand that you recognize that this group of people, they're not a monolith. And so I've had to grow in understanding just the the, the various shades and the various, uh, you know, the diversity even within particular groups of people. And so the nuances of that have been really helpful. I think lastly, what's been really helpful, and, and all that to say, and I, I've hoped I've tried to, even in some of my stories that I tell, not to romanticize this, because there are significant, when, when I talk about racism in a structural way, not everyone was happy about that in my congregation. They're fine if I talk about individual racial prejudice. They're like, oh yeah, that's great. But when I start using larger language of like structural sin, and the ways that sins, tentacles get caught up in systems, people are just like, no, you're going too far, Rich. And I've experienced lots of, lots of resistance with that as well. Um, but I, I think what has helped us along the journey is embodying brokenness, weakness, um, that last kind of seven, repentance, confession, forgiveness. Um, my job is to model that as a pastor and to have our leaders model that and our elders model that and our small group leaders model that to say we're gonna lead the way in brokenness and in confession, we're not gonna get it right. And so we need to make space for errors and mistakes and confession and repentance and forgiveness. And I think because my predecessor established a culture like that and because I've worked really hard to maintain it, I think it's helped us to continue to see what we see at New Life, which for all the things I say, it's rough, it's a beautiful place. And there's no other place in the world I'd rather be than in that place in Queens. And um, I think those are some of the ways that um, we are where we are. Thank you, brother. Can we say thank you to Rich? Thank you.